Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Hi, Jenna. Marhaban, Bart. Inshallah. That's about all I can say in Arabic. That was, I, I googled Egyptian greeting. So hmm. I, I probably butchered the pronunciation, but I, I Googled it. Well, there are an awful lot of inshallahs, too, in these movies that we watched for this episode this week. But wait, before we get there, okay. I want to hold everyone in the suspended animation, because guess what, Bart? This is the last episode of Cinema 60 for the year, not forever, but for the year 2022. We made it. How many episodes did we do this year? It's a pretty good number, huh? We were pretty consistent this year. We only fell behind in the end, <laughs> as usually happens. We had one or two that were a week late, but we still got as many done as we intended, I think. We did. And you know what this really means? This doesn't, the end of the year doesn't really matter. We're going to definitely be doing this again next year. But what's important is that this is my yearly plea for reviews, comments, likes, follows, all of that stuff, right? Don't you love when people leave nice comments and five-star reviews for us? I do, yeah. I mean, if you like this show, spread the word, because it's nice to know we're not shouting into a void here. It's really nice. And usually, because I think of the fact that we do not ask for likes and follows constantly, the one time of the year that I shout this out, we tend to get actually a bunch of nice comments and star ratings, especially on iTunes or Apple Podcast Store, as it's called now. And Spotify, we're on Spotify. We're on many different podcast catchers rss collectors whatever they're called <laughs> and whatever you use to listen to cinema 60 do us a favor give us a give us five stars we're great come on come on you know we deserve it <laughs> <laughs> or even give your honest opinion if you don't think we're a five-star show but just show that you're listening yeah as long as it's not like a, a hate mail <laughs> <laughs> then you can keep it to yourself but the other thing that we accomplished this year, and maybe people don't know about this because we also don't talk about it, which is kind of stupid, <laughs> <laughs> is that we have a Patreon. This was the first year that we launched a Patreon, and it worked. It paid for our entire website for the entire year. How lovely. It's so nice to know that people are not only big fans, but also willing to send money to us in this year of recession another the the third recession of my lifetime love that so anyhow we get it it's expensive to like live and be alive but patreon.com slash cinema six zero you too can join up we have so many great things that we offer including a mini podcast called lovin's 
where Bart and I talk about movies that are about the 60s, but were not made in the 60s. So we're talking about films that came out in 1970, 1980, 1990. Heck, we even did one from 1959. So. I think you can access all our exclusive material on uh, Patreon for just a couple dollars, two, three dollars, something like that. So, you know, if you don't get enough of Cinema 60 with our regular released podcast, get a few more. Get some extra bonus material on our Patreon page. Even better, Bart lists every single movie that came out that week in the 1960s on our Patreon, which is something that he has slogged his little fingers to the bone. I'm OCD about this sort of thing, so I love doing it. It's just uh, remembering to have to do it. That can be a problem, but I haven't forgotten yet. Bart is typing on skeleton fingers because (laughs) he spends so many hours toiling toiling over his keyboard in order to bring you this fresh facts. All right. Can we shut up now about (laughs) all this stuff? I want to get on with uh, Egyptian cinema and its golden age. Go on. I'm listening. So Egyptian cinema, it's uh, not a huge force in world cinema. Now I can't tell you if I've ever seen an Egyptian film from the last 30 years. I've seen a few, but they're all pretty much Golden Age stuff because unlike, say, Korea, which had a Golden Age around the same time, 50s and 60s, the Egyptian Golden Age, uh, starting in the, I guess, mid-40s through the 60s, is celebrated by Egyptians. They are a cinema-loving people, and they remember their own cinematic history fondly. So these, uh, these movies that came out in this period, in this golden age is, you know, equivalent of the golden age of Hollywood. And, it, it, you know, there was a, a big studio system. There were huge stars. It was, I think, the third largest cinema in the world at the time. I think behind the U.S. and, and India. They were putting out a, a huge number of films and there were these films were being distributed to the whole Arab world. The Lumiere brothers showed had some films shown in in Alexandria really early on, so like pre twentieth century, and Egypt just got the cinema bug and had an interest in uh, in producing its own cinema. So you know it was privately financed, so sort of like the Hollywood system. It wasn't a state controlled industry; it was a private industry, and that's that's sort of why it was so commercially minded and so popular and why why so many were made it was making producers money and and the egyptian people loved it there was a real boom in the mid 50s when egypt gained its independence that was sort of the peak of the golden age in the in the mid 50s eventually um not sadat <laughs> who am i thinking of nasser yeah I guess I don't need to get into all the politics of this. I it's you know I read this big old book. I started months ago when Jennifer suggested that we uh, we talk about uh, the golden age of Egyptian cinema. It's it's called Popular Egyptian Cinema by Viola Shafiq, who is the English language scholar on Egyptian cinema. I mean, it's a fun read, but not knowing much about this cinema, it was it was a little hard to 
you know, keep track of all the names, especially before having seen any of these films that we watched for this episode. I was I was a little bit lost trying to keep track. That's a lesson for for me and for everybody. When you're trying to uh, investigate a, a new cinema that you don't know much about, uh, watch some of the movies first yeah. and then start to read about it. <laughs> it's so true. It's not and it's not even that it's a foreign country. It's like straight up. I'm so bad with names. And it really helps if you've seen the movie and you have just a basic understanding of who the big players are before you start committing their names to memory. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I knew Omar Sharif and... Uh, that was all I knew. <laughs> that was <yeah>. it. <laughs> <laughs> I knew the director, Yusuf Shaheen. I'd seen his, you know, Cairo Station and... Uh, I haven't even seen Alexandria that. Wild. I haven't even no, seen that. I know it's like a big great. one. Um, we watched one of his movies uh, for this episode. And actually, uh, Henry Barakat, I saw his Cry of the Nightingale came out in 59. So those are two, 58 and 59. And those are both great movies. So I was excited to do this episode on the golden age of Egyptian cinema, but it didn't give me quite the amount of preparation I needed to to remember all these names. So I think the most important thing is that we just talk about these movies because it's an amazing batch of movies. I mean, every one of these was great. And I don't think that there's a whole lot of background necessary to really appreciate any of them. I mean, as long as you have a sense of, you know, a little bit of a sense of Islamic culture, I don't think there's any way to get lost. These were made, most of these, all but one, I would say, were made for, you know, general popular audience and made in a, in a sort of crowd-pleasing way or tear-jerking crowd crowd tear jerking is there is there a way to say that <laughs> to accessible. jerk the tears of the audience it is yeah. an accessible they're accessible that's a good way to say <laughs> cuz they're not we actually ended up watching quite a few tragic films yeah they all hit these they hit the same hollywood beats that are very recognizable and yet all of these and i agree all of these were amazing i have seen significantly less egyptian film than bart has and that's part of why I was really intrigued to do this is that, you know, I wanted to jump in and see what it was like, especially when you realize, oh, they have this like booming film industry. Like, you know, there's something good there. And uh, so Bart put together this list of the hits, which um, I don't know. I'm always have mixed emotions about because then we watch all these great movies all in one fell swoop. And I just hope there's more great movies for the next time we dip into Egyptian cinema. But <laughs> There should be. I mean, what I did was I picked the most beloved film by each of these directors. So there's only one film from each director. And six of these seven movies we're going to talk about are considered among the best Egyptian films ever made. We have one sort of light romantic comedy in there that I wanted to throw in just to get a taste of what the more popular, you know, the, what the what most people were going to see on an average night at the cinema in Egypt at the time. And actually it was, it was one of my favorites. It was, it was a whole lot of fun, but the rest of these are the great classics and all of these directors were fairly prolific. So we can, yeah, we can go back and dip in and, and watch, watch more from each of these directors, each of these filmmakers. And I'd like to do that at some point, see what kind of response we get from people for, for this episode, because they're really, I mean, I don't think, a lot of people are thinking about Egyptian cinema or even necessarily know that there was this golden age. Certainly not in the West here. 
yeah i mean it was nearly as big as bollywood at the time and it's uh something that's worth your attention yeah certainly i mean it was it was interesting to see how little any of these had been reviewed on letterbox <laughs> yeah. so even at least of, of english-speaking people and and the vast majority of reviews that did exist are all in uh, arabic on letterbox so i mean and that's not even it wasn't like they were hopping in arabic either it was a little bit shocking actually because every other time we've dipped into some other countries films there's usually like you know a significant amount of reviews but like even you know these ones i want to say like a couple hundred for most of them until the final one which is the most well known to americans our ukrainian episode was was kind of similar there weren't a yes. whole lot of reviews out there for those movies and i think this batch of films is even more solid than than that batch and that was one of the most exciting episodes we've done this year as far as i'm concerned discovering you know, these amazing things that nobody knows about. But these are also the thing is that these are in b much better condition than the, a lot of the Ukrainian films. So like these are they're out there, you know, if they exist, they're being looked after, it seems. Yeah. The, I mean, the Egyptians preserve their cinema as opposed to Koreans who have, you know, <laughs> not, have not preserved their golden age cinema. Korea was going through some stuff. OK, Byron. well, we're all going through stuff. But Damn, call out Korea. <laughs> Korea is an, an unusual situation. But let's uh, let's start talking about these films a little bit. The first one was A Beginning and an Ending from 1960. <laughs> by Salah Abusif. Bart, you have anything to say about this director? Um, yeah, one of the practitioners of Egyptian realism, uh, worked with Najib Mahfouz a lot, adapted his novels or, you know, made films from original screenplays by uh, Najib Mahfouz, probably the only Egyptian novelist that most people have heard of. And he's all over the place in these movies that we watched. He had a lot to do with the, the golden age, writing of Golden Age films. I don't have much to say about the filmmaker other than his name comes up a lot in the Golden Age. He's one of the, one of the big ones. And uh, this movie itself is actually, it played out quite a bit like Rocco and his brothers. The Italian film that we reviewed, gosh, in our Kiss, Mary Kill, right? 1960? Yeah, our very first Kiss, Mary Kill. Which we both Same love. Year. Yeah, Visconti movie. Yeah. And yeah, so this is this is a story about uh, a desperate family whose patriarch died and left them penniless. And each of the children, they're, they're just on the cusp of being able to leave the nest, but they're just not really quite ready. Except one, the old, eldest one, who I guess I'll just go through all of them. So there's Hassan, who's played by Farid Shaki who is a that's a big name he's a big name in egyptian cinema right yeah oh yeah we see him a couple times in these movies and he hangs around all of these clubs and he's kind of a bit of a mobster like a low level you know he sells drugs and then these disreputable establishments 
brothels. Yeah, brothels. He has a bunch of ladies hanging off his arms and stuff like that. And he's doing all of this, of course, to support his mother and his siblings. And I guess it should be mentioned up front that women are not meant to be working at all. So, you know, the mother is really kind of, and, and they're left waiting because of her husband's death. He has some sort of pension that is being held up by the gov- the British government. And so they're, meanwhile, they're all languishing. And so then there is the middle brother who is Hussein. <laughs> yeah. I hope all you remember this Hassan and Hussein Hussein, who I think the actor is Kamal Hussein, who is the studious son. And he's completely focused on getting his higher education so that he can support the family. And then there is the daughter, Nafisa, who's played by Sana Gamil. And she, again, is not meant to be working, but uh, and it's shameful for her to be working, but she ends up getting pressed into working to support the family because she's a very good um, seamstress and is, you know, has neighbors who come and say, you're the only one who can make a dress for me, please. You know, that's something she would normally do as a, as a gift or to be friendly. And now she's doing it for, for money. So already she kind of feels uh, this complete shame and it kind of becomes a slippery slope for her. And then the, the, the youngest brother is Hassanin, who's played by Omar Sharif, young, young little baby Omar Sharif, who has the biggest eyeballs I've ever seen. <laughs> he was already a pretty big name in yes. Egyptian cinema at this point. I mean, he had most of the 50s. He had a pretty big career and he's he's on the cusp of, of becoming an international star here. And he's like the prideful younger son and he kind of lives on his whims and he's just desperate to keep up appearances with his friends. And, you know, he's, he's embarrassed about the shape of his family, but he, uh, you know, is constantly asking everyone for everything. You know, he always asks his sister to, to cook him something that they can't afford. And, um, you know, he just never stops to recognize all the sacrifices that are being made around him. So, yeah, I mean, so this whole movie, it really just follows uh, each of these siblings as they continue on this path and so and of course all of it again like Rocco and his brothers it's all very depressing and it only gets worse and worse and really the the main I'd say the heart of this film is about following Nafisa the most shameful of, of all of them initially working and then she's you know sort of flirts with the local son of a of a merchant so that she can get extra food because he slips her extra food and that of course the second that he starts to realize that she can't really afford stuff uh, it starts to get out of hand to the point where he sort of asks her out and then corners her and then rapes her which then launches her down an even darker path of self-hatred which causes her to make increasingly worse but lucrative decisions. I'll put it that way. She, she becomes a prostitute basically. And yeah. And then we see Hassanin go into military school and become, you know, basically too good for his family by the time he comes back. And yeah, I don't really want to spoil every aspect of this. I, I think it's kind of awesome. This was a really, I, I just like the cast in this movie for it, for something that's otherwise, a little bit static uh you know it feels very 1960 but every all of the actors in this are just so compelling and so intriguing that the fact that you know it's not that beautiful of a movie doesn't even matter 
Yeah, it's totally absorbing. Like it's high melodrama, but done in this sort of, you know, neo-realistic way or, you know, social drama sort of way where it's just showing you how awful it is to be poor and the and showing you the lives of unfortunate people who really like through no fault of their own, they had a misfortune, their father dies, otherwise they'd be making out fairly well. They'd at least uh, not have to resort to shameful things like being a seamstress or uh being a bouncer in a nightclub and breaking people's legs who owe people money um, as, as the eldest brother does. But yeah, I did kind of have that issue with this movie too, in terms of how there wasn't a great sense of place. Like you spend a lot of time in their sort of grubby apartment and, you know, you move from apartment to apartment. It seems kind of studio bound, especially, you know, compared to some of the later films we watch for this episode that really give you like, you know where you are in those movies. Like you really get a taste, a flavor for the location in future movies in a way you don't in this one. But that's really, you know, the only thing I can fault it for. The The melodrama does, you know, get quite extreme and you have to have kind of a taste for tragedies piling upon tragedies and, and, and that sort of thing. But it's a good one. And this one was written, I think Najib Mahfouz wrote the screenplay based on a novel of his. So this is one I didn't actually count, but he seemed to have his fingers in a majority of these films that we watched. Well, you know, it's as you mentioned, it really is a sort of misery porn kind of movie. It really is about just how quickly everything can go downhill for you and how awful that'll be. And yet there's so much with these characters that they never feel as one dimensional as I think maybe the overall note of this movie, it feels <laughs> like, I think if it had just been, you know, poverty sucks and that was it, it would have been fine. But the fact that each of these characters have really interesting details that get brought out and, and delivered very convincingly by all of the actors. Like I really love Fareed Shaki in this uh, as that sort of generous brotherly mobster. <laughs> <laughs> like he is like this sort of Elvis sideburns and, and he just keeps getting more and more bohemian and kind of wild. And yet there's this great scene where Hassanin comes and, and sees him after he's become an officer. And he says, you know, he says to his older brother, you have to stop this. You're shaming me. And, and, you know, I, I can't stand to see, you know, how you live and, and all of this. And meanwhile, Hassan is like, you know, who paid for your school? <laughs> it was me. Like, you know, you've been all of your whole life has, has been paid for by, you know, my dirty deeds. So how dirty are they really? And, uh, you know, he's saying this with this, like, you know, woman draped on the couch in the other room. And, you know, he's talking, you know, smoking hash or whatever they're doing. Um, probably worse than hash. But, uh, you know, it's it's this great scene. It, it is hash. It's a, it actually says in the movie that that's what they're. Yeah, but you know that shit was worse than hash. <laughs> <laughs> or even with the sister. I mean, with with uh, Nafisa, it's such a hard line to walk in cinema. I think whenever you get this sort of like female character being punished for shame, goes into pressed into prostitution. It's like such a cliche. What could possibly be more shameful than, than, you know, this woman having to debase herself kind of stuff. And I mean, that's definitely part of this. And yet at the same time, it's interesting how introspective her shame really feels in, in the way that 
she comes to eventually becoming a full-fledged prostitute she finds a sense of pride in it and and it's interesting it's not really shown it's like shown off screen but the fact that she gets to the point where she's like commanding clientele and has started to create an entire business out of this it's not like she's coming home and drinking you know she's coming home with money to put in feeding people and her family her feeding her family specifically and she even is Ooh. is sort of given up you know this idea that she could be anything or do anything because she's just happy enough at bare minimum to be supporting Hassanin and and her you know the rest of her brothers and her mother and ob it's obvious that that's not what she would have chosen for herself but like i don't know how to i don't know how to describe it it's just an interesting way to kind of show this and the, and basically it's only when she gets caught that suddenly she she feels like a great shame for what's happened and where she's been yeah her slide into this uh this profession she definitely feels a lot of shame but i never thought that she became proud of what she was doing I, her sense of pride it no, seemed it's... to me was was just that she could send her brother to military school and that the fact that you know whatever sacrifices she has to make it's worth it because she's supporting her family she's she's getting her family back up to where they should be but you know before their father died i actually think that omar sharif deserves a lot of credit for what he does in this movie because he's pretty much just a selfish jerk for most of the film and yet he's never completely unsympathetic like yeah. every other character the the three other siblings are all just you know just doing whatever they can to support the family the mother like everybody is just like family comes first family comes first but Hassanin is the one character who's like no I come first you know and some of that is coming from this idea that you know his family has sunk so low and he needs to to rise above he needs to like bring great pride to his family by becoming this you know soldier but uh it's all just so self-serving you hate a lot of the decisions he makes but he also and i think a lot of it just comes from his charisma as a performer but he's always a compelling focus for the film even when he's doing awful things yeah he's amazing i mean because what happens with him is that he starts off as basically comic relief in a way i mean he's just this sort of young brash brother who is just you know constantly flirting with this one girl in town who's just head over heels for and he's tutoring her brother in english and he's not even paying attention to what he's saying to the brother though his english is quite good <laughs> he's mm -hmm. the only one in all these movies who when they say something in english you're like oh yeah no that's, that's you got the accent down great but um it's kind of like he's pouring the tea and, and missing the cup because he's too busy trying to, to not make eye contact, but make eye contact with this older sister. So, you know, he starts off as this kind of goofy little brother, you know, he's attractive and, and, you know, is selfish, but in a, in a cute way, he's like, you know, you kind of do want to indulge him because he's just so full of life. Then when he returns, you know, from school and it's like everything that you saw, all these little hints of his selfishness, overtake all of the charm and suddenly he's just this completely different person and yet he's he's it's very clear where the person that he becomes came from and it's 50 50 as far as the writing and, and omar sharif just being you know excellent at, at what he does but I, there's really some shocking i mean it, it's sort of shocking how he comes back i mean they're the woman that he's engaged to he he breaks it off with her strictly because she's uh 
not rich enough for him anymore. You know, he, he straight up says poverty's taught you to be mediocre and he dumps her, which is shameful for her and, and, you know, and embarrassing for his whole family. And especially because it's this family that, you know, really like loves him and was warm to him. And, you know, he's just can't, he's just too busy climbing the ladder in order to see what's around him. And of course that, amplifies and amplifies to a breaking point that's even more shocking but i don't want to spoil that one Mm -hmm. yeah but this film does not to dwell on this we've already gone on too long with this first film we've got a lot of films to cover but we're already seeing a lot of themes that come back again and again in all of these films first of all there's how women are treated in arabic society it's there all of these films are very sympathetic to the stigma that's placed on a woman who's unmarried and not a virgin. But it's always a a major plot point in these films is that some woman has been seduced uh, or a woman's value as a sex object sort of is a major part of, I think, every one of these films. And that's, that's already here. I'll talk about some of the other ongoing themes as we move further along, but, uh, but that's one that's in all of these. Um, The next film we did was uh, A Rumor of Love from 1961. Fatin Abdel Wahab who was a uh, director of musicals and light romantic comedies. And that's what this one is. It's actually a remake of an American play by Anita Luz and John Emerson, The Whole Town's Talking. I think there was a silent film made of that play, but I haven't seen it. So I don't know the original at all. But you can sort of see from, you know, the farcical nature of this film that it could easily have been based on an American farcical play. Again, we have Omar Sharif, who plays the very serious, studious accountant for this businessman played by Youssef Wabi. He's sort of got uh, these two two nephews. One is, uh, you know, this sort of goofball who does whatever his uh, his uncle tells him to do, and the other is Hussein, played by Omar Sharif, who is um, you know takes the business very seriously and. Abdel really likes the businessman really likes this nephew because he's so serious and wants him to marry his daughter, Samiha, who he's been in love with for forever. And uh, she's just come back from Europe or, uh, you know, Alexandria or something. So she's been away uh, at some place more sophisticated. And she comes back to town with uh, with another cousin of theirs. Uh, Lucy is his name. And he's this just sort of useless guy but he's really charming he can sing he can dance and he's totally a uh, you know westernized kind of guy and uh, and she's maybe not uh, in love with him but a little infatuated and just thinks he's a lot of fun and and Hussein is totally jealous because he wants her and he's so much better than this worthless uh, playboy Lucy and so his uncle boss agrees so he uh the uncle says, well, you have to pretend to be the man that she wants. You have to let's let's create this backstory for you where you actually do have a lot of lovers. And uh, because, you know, she wants a sophisticated man who's had lots of worldly experiences. And so you be this man for her. And uh, 
a lot of the comedy in the film comes from the fact that Hussein is such a straight laced guy. He's got these, you know, wears these thick glasses and, uh, you know, just not, not the playboy type at all, but the uncle and this, uh, you know, this other goofy nephew whose uh, talent seems to be uh, mimicking people's voices. They write all these, you know, love letters that, uh, that, you know, they're meant to be found and, and they're in Hussein's room and they have this photograph of one of the biggest Egyptian stars, uh, Hind Rostam, who's, you know, considered was called the Marilyn Monroe of Egyptian cinema. And, um, boy, so can I just say, boy, howdy is she? Look at her. She's wild. <laughs> yeah. She's a lot of woman and she, <laughs> she really and she... <laughs> is. It's wild. Okay. Continue. This movie actually was full of huge Egyptian stars. Um, Suad Hosni is, uh, plays Samiha, the object of desire for Hussein. And she is like one of the biggest. Egyptian stars of all time, like one of one of the great actresses. Every well, she didn't make any impression internationally, but she's um, she and Hind Rostam were and and Omar Sharif were you know among the biggest heartthrobs in Egyptian cinema, and they're all in this film. And uh, anyway, so they forge this love note from Hind Rostam on her photograph that uh, talking about how how they were lovers back in Alexandria and. She misses him. How could he break up with her? And and it, so it gets around town. This this movie is called A Rumor of Love, and it's it's this plot point that it's it's referring to. It's where this rumor goes around, like everybody all of a sudden knows. Oh, our you know mild mannered Hussein has had an affair with Hind. Did you hear? And uh, and of course, eventually Hind herself shows up, and things get really wacky. It's a lot of fun. It's just a a goofy romantic comedy with just a touch of Islam to it uh, in, in that a lot of the situations in this movie arise from the fact that Samia, who's only 16, maybe is uh, you know not allowed to go anywhere with a man who's she's not related to. And, you know, certain things like that, just sort of certain cultural things that were easy to sort of add to an American plot to, to make it a little more Egyptian. But other than that, it you know, plays out just like a really fun comic farce that Hollywood could have produced. Oh, dude, this is like, this is Omar Sharif doing his best Cary Grant impersonation. Yeah. Like, like yeah, straight up. Like bringing up baby era. Yeah. Cary Grant. And he crushes it. Especially with the goofy glasses that, you know, make him look even more attractive, but everyone thinks he looks like a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> when he wears these tweed suits that are so unstylish, but he looks pretty good. He looks great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was really cute. I, I really enjoyed this. I I don't know that it made me like laugh, but it made me smirk. It made me smile. That's for sure. I laughed. I got I got a bunch of good chuckles out of this. I really liked who was the the cousin. What was his name? The who does the impersonation of the boss to cover for him? Marus is the character name. Yeah, the or the he's the brother, right? Is he the brother There's, of Omar or is he the cousin of Omar? Because he works for his uncle. It's a little hard to tell because everybody is sort of nephew, uncle, right. cousin, you know, <laughs> and like a lot of the this. This movie sort of leads you to believe that these two, that Samia's two cousins are both after her and her only romantic options in life are, are, you know, to choose between one of her two cousins. And I think that there must be some 
it must be a, a somewhat nebulous term. I, I can't imagine that they're both first cousins. Yeah, you're hoping they're second cousins. <laughs> um, but no, I, I mean, like, so Marus, he he always does these like very, and they're funny. He you know where he sort of sits on the phone, and it's clearly the 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 actual actor overdubbing uh, the voice, so that over the phone he sounds exactly like the person he's impersonating. So when he's impersonating his father, uh, whenever his mother calls. <laughs> Uh, and his father is out womanizing. He has to be the he has to be the cousin. There's no way that's his mom. He's he's lying to. I don't remember. Anyhow, whenever the his boss that's a nephew. Yeah, he's a nephew. Yeah, okay. They're all nephews. They're all nephews. <laughs> <laughs> so he, you know, like the the boss, the you know this this husband is always out womanizing, or he's out you know charming, you know trying to flirt with with other women, and and his wife keeps calling, and so you know Maroose is on the phone doing like this pitch perfect impersonation of him, uh, you know, and saying just the right amount of like, Oh, so busy, you know, oh, I have to sign this deal. Okay. Gotta go, you know? And it's great because it starts off as kind of this, this dopey joke about, you know, basically covering for, you know, the boss as he's out philandering, but then it ends up getting even wackier and wackier as the whole movie comes on to the point where he has to impersonate Hind over the phone and, and it's also again it's clear that they just overdubbed the voice but the, you know the, the actor is doing a great job of looking like he's really really saying it <laughs> you know and this sort of he, he gets into character whenever he does it so that was really fun uh i liked everything with lucy <laughs> including his name which i don't understand whatsoever i'm i said i like someone needs to tell me if lucy is even an egyptian name or if that was just like they thought that's an American name and it's, <laughs> it should work. <laughs> There's also something a little bit effeminate about him. Yeah. Well, the father straight up calls him a homo. <laughs> <laughs> he keeps mistaking him for a girl because his hair is so long, but his hair is like Elvis. It's like not long, long. But even, you know, I think Marus, he has no interest in the ladies at all. And he's never even considered like no one talks about him as a potential match for anybody. Maybe he's too goofy or, I, I you know, I suspect that maybe if anyone here is gay, it would be Marus. But Lucy is just, you know, it's just so flamboyant. Well, that, Lucy know. has a master's degree in dance, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which rules. And I also love how, like, there's a scene where I think, I think, I'm pretty sure it was Samia says to Omar Sharif, like, the man that I have to marry, it must be wise to the world and a good dancer and witty. And you have none of those qualities. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, that's ice cold, but that's legit. Uh -huh. That's what, that's what we, all women want in a man, in my opinion. Yeah. I'm glad we watched this one. It's not a, a major film in any way, but I think of all of these films that we watch, it really gives us the best taste of what people were watching in Egypt at the time and how, you know, close to Hollywood the films were. Yeah. It's really, it's, it's really dopey in a, in a really fun, joyful way. There's a lot of good beats. Like when Omar Sharif has to go find a girlfriend and like just a photo of a girlfriend and he chooses the Queen of England, <laughs> Nefertiti, and Hin <laughs> And everyone's like, what the hell? <laughs> but then, yeah, when they see the picture of Hin, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. That's the, that exact, she's exactly the, the kind of woman that you should have had an affair with for Samia to think you're a worldly man. And Hind, when she does show up in the movie, is great, too. Yeah, she's got it. Well... 
The next movie we go back into melodrama with Chased by Dogs or The Thief and the Dogs. and the dogs is the name of the Najib Mahfouz novel that this is based on. Yes, which is apparently like a beloved novel. Uh, this is 1962. It was directed by Kamal El Shai. Sheikh, I think. Sheikh. <laughs> Sorry, world. All I do is mispronounce. I, I mispronounce English names too, so don't worry about it. This movie follows uh, Saeed, who is played by Shukri Sarhan, who's another big name in Egyptian cinema. Yeah, well, he comes back again in a major role in one of our later films. And basically, he gets betrayed by his wife and his best friend. They plot to have him rob a house. He's a, a thief, and uh, they set him up. They get him to rob a house, and then they call the cops on him, so he goes to jail for about four years while the two of them shack up in the same apartment as his infant daughter. And so once Saeed gets out of prison, he wants revenge. He's completely consumed by thoughts of revenge. And so the first thing that he does is that he seeks out an old friend who is a journalist. At the time when he knew him, he was a bit of a, like a socialist intellectual organizer you know, a bit of a, a revolutionary. And uh, he had at the time, this friend uh, Raul took a chance on Saeed and then mentored him. But now, uh, you know, several years later, he's like a star journalist and he's living this real life life of total luxury. And so Raul is way less inclined to help Saeed, especially when he finds out that he's just spent four years in jail Saeed's really hoping that he would take him in and, and try and help him get it back on his feet. But instead, he just says, you know, ah, I can't help you with that. That really sucks. Uh, here's like 20 bucks or something. Yeah. Actually, like 40. I don't know. It, it's not an insignificant amount of money for someone who's completely impoverished, but it's also not anything that's going to really is not life changing in any sort of way. And so Saeed is pissed and decides to then wait and rob him in his house because he figures, what, what do I have to lose? And this is like one day out of jail. Uh, and so Raul ends up waiting up for him. And Saeed gets caught and Raul says, I won't report you now, but if I hear of you doing anything else, I'm definitely calling the cops. And I know I have your name. I, I can, you know, blow up your spot. So don't even think about it and you know i i showed you sympathy and empathy and give me my money back and be gone with you basically so he you know really kind of slams the book down on him so uh in the heat of poverty and desperation saeed decides doesn't know is some totally you know now he has nowhere to turn he decides to kill his wife and her lover but he ends up shooting uh you know he goes back to his apartment where they lived and he basically you know he acquires a gun and, and goes to the apartment and shoots through the glass on the door just you know after knocking on the door not sure who's who's answering and it ends up being an innocent man so this makes the news and raul because he knows the apartment 
And it's sort of like known that Saeed was looking for revenge. He basically starts a public smear campaign against Saeed, which then feeds further into Saeed's whole persecution complex. And uh, yeah, so I mean, it's pretty much this this whole movie is just following Saeed as he navigates the world post-arrest. And the only person who seems to be really willing to help him is this sort of starry-eyed prostitute named Noor, who is totally in love with him and will do anything to to help protect him. But Saeed's just so consumed with anger that he doesn't even know if he should be trusting her. And he kind of, you know, is not very nice to her. And yeah, I don't, you know, this is such a beloved novel, but the movie itself, it's well acted. It is intriguing, but I just didn't connect with this movie. And I'm not totally sure why. How did you feel about it? I really liked it. I thought it had a nice noir aspect to it. You know, this revenge-obsessed guy who gets out of jail just, like, keeps doing the wrong things because he's so blinded by his rage. And, uh, you know, we just want him to settle down with this really nice woman who will do anything for him. And he knows it. He knows that's the right choice to make, but he still cannot keep his mind off of getting his revenge on everybody who's wronged him. And he keeps, you know, shooting the wrong people and just getting, you know, in worse and worse trouble. Raul, you know, in the papers is, you know, starts referring to him as a serial killer and he becomes sort of a cult hero in this town. You know, people are both terrified of the serial killer, but also are really obsessed with him. And they all kind of want to give the serial killer the benefit of the doubt. Like, why, why is he doing this stuff? Maybe he has a reason. And the editor guy, Raul, just because he's pissed at Saeed and, and doesn't want, uh, you know, Saeed to let anybody know about his you know, sort of dirty past. He's, uh, he's got it out for him and really just wants him destroyed. I think it's an interesting dynamic. And uh, yeah, I feel like the novel must go a lot deeper into a lot of this stuff because it doesn't go too far beyond what you might see in, you know, a solid American film noir. But uh, I think it's as good as a lot of them. Or even um, Jour Celeb, the French movie by Marcel Carnet, written by Jacques Prévert, and some other specific movies where it's a you know a fugitive on the lamb and uh, you know just hiding out for most of the movie, but uh, you know that doesn't keep him from making a lot of wrong decisions and just digging his own grave deeper and deeper. Yeah, I mean, apparently the book is written in stream of consciousness from Saeed's point of view, which sounds a little more intriguing because the thing that was kind of confusing me was how we were actually meant to feel for Saeed. And and so I l- really enjoyed this part where we finally get to him being this infamous character where you get to overhear people on the street saying, oh, I think he's sympathetic. Oh, I think he, you know, it's his destiny to die. And, you know, the, like this, these like mixed emotions about who this man is and what he symbolizes or comes to symbolize and then who finds him sympathetic and who doesn't. And as you said, Raul, you know, working actively to to smear his his name because he either sees something in himself, you know, that that Saeed is represents his past that he wants to completely kill or, you know, it's sort of there's a lot that's left undiscussed, I guess, within the film that that I really wish that it had gotten deeper into each of these characters and, and been a little less plot driven because the plot is fine. It's just not very compelling i think these characters are much more compelling apparently the book is also extremely political which this movie was definitely 
scrubbed of. And I feel like there's this big hole in this movie where there needs to be a political statement or some sort of political context. And I don't know what that is because I haven't read the book <laughs> and I don't know enough about Egypt in this time in history to say. Where the first film felt like misery porn, this one feels almost like... I don't know. It, it feels like, you know, he's bad because he's poor. And and I don't think that's where this was meant to be going. Hmm. I just thought it was following a noir arc. Like, you know, the, the fates are against him and that he, you know, just making one wrong decision after another and trusting the wrong people. Yeah. I mean, like if I sort of think of this as like a Camus story, basically, then I, I kind of like it because it is pretty. It's like you know, nothing goes right for this dude. And then he also keeps like killing people and then just sort of walking away from it <laughs> or, you know, doing something terrible. And, and just because he feels like it pretty much, it's like very, he feels like he's really living on, on whims and doesn't actually think ahead, you know, from his immediate emotions. And so like, that was what was sort of confusing me was, is this meant to be that he's, you know, that it is like Camus, that he is just sort of, living uh in this hand-to-mouth kind of like like thought to reality it's like he's not even giving it any thought he's just doing things he's living impulsively you know is that meant to be like a truer way of living like i don't know maybe i'm just overthinking it like but i, I felt like there was something here that was that the whole movie was sort of driving at that it never actually got to Sounds to me like you had more literary expectations of this film, knowing its uh, its origins than it delivered on. No, but that was after I watched it. <laughs> <laughs> I really felt like there was something missing from this. Like I just I couldn't figure out what Sa if Saeed was meant to be. Like I, I, there's there's something missing in here. Otherwise, it just feels again. It feels like basically that you know poor people are evil kind of a movie. Like I just. I mean, I guess, you know, but that's maybe that's just life. There is no context for life sometimes, but I don't know. I, it's, it, there was there was enough other stuff happening here that I, I felt like it needed to go deeper into all of these characters and it just completely arm's length in a way. And it just wasn't noir stylish enough for me to just kind of coast on that, I guess. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think that he was any less deep than any noir protagonist. I think it does deliver on that. This movie does have a real sense of place to it. And I love Nora's apartment that he ends up staying in and you, you get to meet some of the people who, you know, her, her landlady and some of her friends that stop by. I don't know. There's a lot of local flavor in this and just adding that aspect to a somewhat typical, um, let's say not atypical noir, American noir story. It just, it gave it, everything it needed for me to really enjoy it. We also should mention that Noor played by uh, Shadia, who's another big bombshell, it seems. Yeah, I think she was as famous as a singer as she was as an actress. And I think she did a lot of musicals, too. She was great in this, too. I was, I was impressed with her. Very sympathetic. But again, the women in these movies are all sort of too perfect in a way. They're all so noble they're all the whores with hearts of gold yeah. sorts of characters and you like them and they're they're sympathetic and it really you know the movie is willing to spend time you know having you get to know these characters but they're a little bit too good 
in a way, like even though, and I think that's, you know, because she's a prostitute, how could she be so good and yet a prostitute? And that sort of that conflict there is is supposed to be a little shocking or, or something. But uh, yeah, it just seems like there's there's always so much sympathy for these fallen women in all of these movies that uh, that they tend to be a little too good, a little too noble. I think that was part of what was kind of bugging me about this is that everyone's a little too cliche. It's like a little too obvious, like a little too stagey. Like Saeed is just paranoid and then he only gets more paranoid or someone's wealthy. They get more corrupt. If you know, someone's in poverty, they're stuck in a cage. You know, it's like the whole thing feels like a bunch of cliches thrown at a wall. And I think, I think the, what I like about a lot of noirs is when they, kind of punch that extra punch like someone is maybe a criminal but then they do something like one thing that's nice and it screws up their whole life or they get really nasty or you know there's always like something that kind of pushes forward in in one direction that you might not expect and this one is very there's there's no surprise here you know there's nothing Mm. that everything's just very straightforward it's like if if it starts at a it ends at a I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I also think it's. But you liked it more. Um, That's fine. Yeah, I like it. I just think it's a solid crime movie. It is. Next in uh, 1963, we have Saladin the Victorious. is directed by Youssef Shaheen, who is the most well-known director in Egypt. Uh, I think he's still making films. If he's no longer with us, it's only very recently that he's passed because he's continued to make the most internationally known Egyptian films. We had to get uh, one of his in here, and this uh, actually is the biggest historical epic that ever came out of Egypt. It was set during the Crusades. Saladin is the uh, Arabian warlord who's uh, fending off the the Europeans who are trying to take back Jerusalem. It's a lot of you know political intrigue among kings and and that sort of thing. What's interesting about this is that I mean we've got a lot of really impressive battles, and um, you know Saladin always comes off as very uh, you know heroic and that he's planned these strategies to, against the Europeans that uh, you know always you know he 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 outsmarts them and you know every time and he's um, and he's also like portrayed as a little bit too noble you know so noble and so concerned with this idea that Jerusalem belongs to everybody to Christians to Jews to Arabs. That he sort of, he becomes this figure that can do no wrong. So it, he, in a way, he's not even a, a very interesting character in this. He's sort of the central figure that all of these events revolve around, and it's his, him who he, he's the one who's making these like grand decisions and outsmarting the Europeans. But the movie doesn't really care about him all that much. He's got one Christian, like his right hand man named Isa, is a Christian. So we actually, he's sort of the one Arab character that we actually, you know, spend some time with and care about. And it's sort of interesting that he happens to be a Christian, and but he's fighting with Saladin. 
and um, as this Arab Christian, he ends up connecting to a female crusader, uh, Louisa, played by Nadia Lutfi, who's another huge, huge Egyptian star. She's a soldier herself, and she uh, she ends up shooting him. They have sort of a meet cute where he goes to swim in this lake, and she's she's just come out of the lake and she's getting dressed, and she says, "Don't don't turn around, I'm getting dressed." And he says, "Okay, I'll turn around, but uh, don't go anywhere." And uh, she, the only good guy in cinema, like <laughs> I swear to God, this is the only time in a '60s movie that some guys actually turned around and not like snuck a peek, especially an Egyptian man in one of these movies, like they're all portrayed as like, (laughs) they're all rapists. Every one of them, like it's, they're just upset. Like they cannot see a woman without thinking, Oh, how can I corrupt this woman? I mean, we are, we're meant to judge. (laughs) I'm sort of getting, that's not a major part of this film, but it's a major part of all of these films in a certain way is that we're meant to see how sleazy men are and judge them for being that way. But the consistency of betraying men that way is really kind of surprising. But anyway, so besides this sort of enemies but lovers affair between Issa and Louisa, who, you know, she doesn't know if she can love an Arab, even though he's a Christian, but she's also sympathetic and she sort of becomes a nurse. She stops being a soldier because she realizes that, oh, I'm fighting against other Christians and and these Arab Christians can fight alongside Muslims and, you know, maybe I'm not doing the right thing. So she becomes a nurse, but she still can't bring herself to marry an Arab. You know, this is sort of the one like personal story that we get in the film. But the rest of the film is all of the different European kingdoms, like Richard I, uh, Richard the Lionhearted from England is sort of the main antagonist. He's sort of the leader of all of the, the European armies. What he says goes, I guess England had the largest army and he's also just renowned as a as a leader and a strategist. So they all kind of defer to him. But then there's all, the, all this sort of political intrigue where other, you know, mainly the French are trying to betray him. Richard is, you know, willing to sort of negotiate with Saladin and, uh, you know, maybe listen to his ideas that, oh, we all we all can share Jerusalem. You don't need to come here and capture it and take its riches. Let's let's all just work together. And Richard is like, you know, he's he's willing to toss that idea around. But then the other European countries are like, no, this is no good. We want we want to steal the gold of Jerusalem. We want to you know, we want to become wealthy. We can't return to Europe saying that we had a truce that we, uh, you know, that we negotiated, you know, settled peacefully. We want to come back victors and uh, watching all this backstabbing. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's there's this one. um Virginia is uh, the scheming woman who is uh, you know, sort of convincing men in beautiful Virginia. She's, she's convincing these kings to betray somebody that thinks that they can trust them. And, and uh, that plan fails. So she moves on to some other king and says, well, you should do this. And, and then you'll be the you'll return to Europe as the, as the great victor. And, uh, you know, all of her scheming is sort of fails. And so the movie is, is much more interested in this stuff watching what the Europeans are doing and how they're, they, you know, they become a, uh, an unpredictable enemy for Saladin because he sees them as this one unified force against them, but really they, none of them can really agree on what they want to do. And they don't necessarily want to listen to what Richard wants to do. And I'm not a big fan of historical epics in general, but I thought this one was really solid and it did not play out the way I expected it to. This is also based on a novel by Najib Mahfouz, 
apparently it has very little to do with the actual life of Saladin. I mean, you know, the events are all real events, but the way things play out are, are highly fictionalized. And uh, in a way, it's sort of propagandistic, and you know, to have this, you know, turn Saladin into this figure of this Arab who wants to accept all faiths and and just bring peace to to peace to the Middle East. Yeah, I uh, and and it's it's just really impressive to look at. It's like over three hours long, and it, I don't think it drags at all. It's it totally held my attention, which these long ass epics often don't. At times, it gets a little stylized, like it turns into sort of a stage play where you see the um, Richard condemns someone who betrayed him as, and Saladin does at the same time. They sort of show these two executions side by side on the screen in a very stage-like way. It's a beautiful looking movie. It's in color. It's one of the two films we watched in color and the colors are gorgeous and it's a, it's a great looking film. The stuff with the stage was the absolute best part of this because otherwise it felt kind of like your standard epic. But the those really cool, there's really cool camera things that happen in between, like made me basically like wake up whenever it happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, I, but I agree. As far as as three hour epics based on you know religious <laughs> content go, this was way more engaging than like some like. BS Hollywood Bible movie, but like it was mostly because of the fact that it didn't censor the violence or the backstabbing. Like this is pretty much Game of Thrones style spy versus spy, leader versus leader kind of stuff, you know, which is intriguing. It's it's actually interestingly done, even though I knew totally. I mean, like the, there's no way that he was advocating for all faiths. <laughs> <laughs> like come on how did you like that portrayal of arthur you didn't know this was going to be a movie that could have fit into our king arthur episode i was wondering about that actually i was like is that is that our arthur yeah he's this weasley you know old balding man who doesn't seem to have much power at all except for little things he can accomplish through scheming and everyone in whiteface loved that that was great yeah (laughs) (laughs) legit i think that was hilarious because it was pretty much like i don't know like uh Paint their faces a little bit white and give them red hair. Like, we're done. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, but so these little in-between bits. So, like, the 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 bit, the first big battle, which is basically a bunch of Muslims praying and all of these marauding French coming in and murdering all of them in cold blood while praying. And there's suddenly, like, it cuts to these great camera moves. It's like they have the camera set on somebody holding a sword and then they just spin that guy (laughs) and you see this like because it's like this stark desert so you're seeing all these people that are falling away with blood on them twirling you know with this sword so it's like basically almost like from the sword's point of view is kind of visually what you're what you get from it and it's this like cutting from white cloth to red cloth and like it gets really abstract and really stylized and it's amazing it's like it, the editing is is awesome and the effect is really great and there's a handful of times where they do these like little cutaways to like straight up paintings uh and it's so fast that you don't realize what it is like you think oh yeah like like especially when they're doing this stuff where you have like i mean there's a ton of extras in this like oh my god there's so many people in this movie but when they're trying to show like these giant epic battles 
it's almost it, like the thing that I think of was like the last Lord of the Rings movie. <laughs> you know, it's like that style of like everyone on the whole planet is now fighting kind of a battle. Uh, and they cut to these like, you know, zooms out from basically like a painting. So you can see all these like, you know, it's basically people, you know, in formation that are, are marching. But it's so it would it would be like a drone shot today, you know, that would be totally CGI. Uh, and it and it works. It's like it happens so fast that you you just get that quick sense of like, oh shit, like this is huge. And then they go right back into lighting people on fire <laughs> and whatever <laughs> else they're doing, uh, which is just as impressive. But yeah, that stuff where they're like actually on a stage, and you see that like this camera pulls out, and you can see both sides of the stage, and like the light comes on on one side as they talk, and then it goes down. The light comes on the other side. I love that. I love that mm -hmm. so much. It's so effective and it doesn't take you out of the story. Like it really, really works. You know, it's basically, it's this sort of split screen and like showing this stuff happening at the same time. It really builds. It, it's climactic. You know, it's, it's really intriguing. It, it, I just, I loved all, all of these little, and, and there's, there's one scene where there's a battle and it just cuts to photographs. So you're just seeing, like again it's like this weird abstract thing like they're trying to hold your attention and they're not too sure which one of these is going to work so they're just throwing everything at the wall and it all works yeah the thing that we watched for the show that comes closest to this is el cid and the battle scenes are equally as impressive in both this movie doesn't have the corniness of of el cid and it, it flows better as a story although you know some of that is me just being you know, sucked in by the exoticism of this production, but El Cid wouldn't dream of having these, you know, abstract stylized cutaways. You know, a Hollywood production would think that would take away from the realism that they were trying to portray. But that's the thing. So like when El Cid, you get all these guys, it's like these amazing amount of extras and then they all clash. And the second that they're clashing, all you see is people wave, literally waving swords around in a circle because yeah. what are they going to do? Whereas this movie knows that it's, it, it recognizes its limitations. And so it, it, ha it knows it has to cut not only to keep momentum, but to keep you realizing, you know, the level of violence. And uh, obviously they're not going to actually kill people. So, you know, they cut to these different things that, that work like just as well. It completely, you know, yeah, it's, it's abstract, but like it gets the point across way more and it feels way more violent to suddenly cut to a screen where everything's red. Like you just know this is a bloodbath. And then when they cut to the aftermath, which is something that you can show, you know, on screen with costumes and makeup, you're like, oh my God, like there's this amazing scene too later on where uh, all these Christians get burned alive and everyone gets disfigured and they're all screaming. And it's like, you don't see it happen on screen because they couldn't do it at the time. But the aftermath and the way that they cut through these things and the, the editing, it's like really messed up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you, you know, you'll see these, the characters after this, fire bath and they'll their their face will be half in shadows and then they'll turn and you see the the you know huge scar on their face and it's all very theatrical like it's it's done for maximum theatrical effect but it all totally works the thing with with saladin though i have to say is that like i really i i enjoyed however revisionist this like message of all religion is good was was kind of intriguing 
and something you would absolutely never see in a Christian film. <laughs> uh, so I, I sort of enjoyed it for that, but it was also like, you know, the, he's like de- devoid of ego in a way where it's like, we know damn well that this isn't true just because he's so terrified of giving up Jerusalem. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, like he's like, you know, oh, I'm the one who would take better care of this and I'll accept all of you. So be under my rule. And it's like, okay, dude, <laughs> you're not that great. Like we get it. Like you still want to be top dog. Yeah. It's the most violent movie to end with Christmas that we've watched. Oh, that's true. It it is a Christmas movie. <laughs> really, yeah. <laughs> the least Christian, most violent Christmas movie I've ever seen. The next movie was The Sin from 1965. Which is directed by Henry Barakat. Who you talked about earlier. Yeah, Cry of the Nightingale. That was a 1959 film he did, which is great. Big tonal whiplash here because this one was like way depressing and also about contemporary Egypt. And the plot here is that a dead baby is found in a field. Uh, in a field where it's like, you know, pretty much all made up of migrant workers, you know, picking vegetables or whatever they're doing. And uh, this dead baby's found in a field. And so everyone starts talking. They're all trying to figure out, you know, the, the guy who owns the field, the boss man comes up, comes about and he's terrified because it's a, such a scandal if everyone finds out. So he wants to, you know, know who did this. And of course, everyone starts to whisper, but the workers surprisingly are, are keeping kind of quiet about it, but eventually it, it kind of gets out to the town and everyone's suspecting everyone and they presume it was killed rather than it being a stillborn. So the first half of this movie is just sort of the mystery of, of you know, pulling out and then trying eventually to eventually hearing, you know, from a worker uh, as the as the boss stumbles upon a woman who's lying in these reeds uh, and she's, you know, looks really, really sick and and unwell. And one of the fellow workers says, oh, look, she has a fever. She's been like this for days. She can't afford medicine. She has children and a husband. And, you know, just please leave her, leave her alone. And he says, why should I pay for this woman if she's not doing her work? And, you know, so he tells her all this and, you know, they start to suspect maybe this was the one who had given birth and the worker admits that she was. And then it cuts to this flashback where we find out that this woman is named Aziza and essentially um, her whole life get, gets derailed when her husband can no longer work. This is after we see like their, their joyful marriage and she's this person with like a ton of life and, you know, she'll do anything for her husband. She's so happy to go to work and help him. And they end up having two children and, and that's when her husband uh, gets injured and can't work anymore so she's, of course, left to go continuously to the field. You know, it's pretty much exactly like migrant workers uh, today where, you know, you kind of wait around at, at a place in town and you get called on a big truck and hauled out to the fields and you do your work and you get given, a you know, poverty wages for incredibly hard work. And uh, I don't know. I feel like I have to say what the entire movie is about. Otherwise, um, 
not really a spoiler movie. The but... reveal comes fairly late in the film, but it's uh, it's important. Yeah, so I mean, it's pretty much just that, like we're we're learning every single detail about her life, and it it you know her husband one day says, I, "I'd love to have a potato," and they and you know she says, "Huh, where can I get one?" and and goes to a field where I see the owner of the field, or there's like the it's somebody else's field, and this is just somebody who's guarding the field, and you know she hears that people will will take potatoes from this field all the time, and it's no big deal. And this guard who's there, you know, initially helps her. She's like, oh, I, I just wanted a potato. My husband's sick and that's all he wants. And he actually does the digging for her and gives her a couple of potatoes. But then she uh, she trips and falls and it, it's too much for him to resist. And, you know, a, a fallen woman. Well, it's more like the fact that he did her a favor and now he expects her to do him a favor. And so he rapes her and she keeps this uh, hidden from her husband and you know, carries on, but realizes she's pregnant. And then, you know, it kind of goes from there. So we know where, what happens, but yeah, I mean, this was a really, I, this was a, again, for a movie that is like total misery theater. (laughs) Mm. It's really almost shocking to see something so empathetic on film and not just empathetic towards this woman as a sort of woe is her, but empathetic towards migrants who are, unfairly maligned by the entire village empathetic towards uh, you know victims of rape people who are being abused by their employers uh the inability to afford health care i mean all of this stuff gets touched upon and it's kind of wild how relevant this is today to the whole damn world (laughs) yeah when she brings that stick out to the field when she's uh she's having contractions and you think you're going to get another graphic self-induced abortion scene. And yeah, she's just using it to bite on while she gives birth. But uh, yeah, I think what makes it palatable is there is, there's so much sympathy. Like life is tough and it gets worse when her husband gets sick and even worse when she gets raped and pregnant, but it's sort of presented in such a matter of fact way. And it will take time away from that main storyline to sort of, spend some time with other migrant workers in this sort of community. And, you know, it's the film starts out where there, there, there is this all this animosity between the people in the village and the migrant workers who have come there to work, especially when they find the dead baby and say, oh, it's got to be the migrant workers. They're they're awful. Only they would do something like this. And then to have, you know, the villagers then like come to sort of feel sympathetic to the migrant workers. And as the film progresses, they sort of, you know, join the migrant workers in the field and, you know, share a meal and, you know, right before it's time for them to go back or whatever. And it's, you know, this sort of sense of community and how we're all in the same boat together. The sympathy is really what makes it so palatable. And it's just a beautifully shot movie. There's some compositions in this that are gorgeous. I was really impressed with this one. Yeah, I agree. You know, it's like anytime it gets really, really dark and it, it gets insanely dark, it, it does seem to level out with something that's sort of unexpectedly uplifting. And a lot of that is what you said. People actually trying to help. That to me, I guess, is is really what makes something like, you know, misery porn versus uh, a, just a sad story is like if someone is just like in the gutter and everyone just stands around and goes, Oh, how sad or no, or kicks them or something. (laughs) And that doesn't happen in in this, even, even when, you know, people are being openly bigoted 
uh, there's always someone else who's trying to, you know, who says, no, 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 wait, you know, let's be reasonable. And, you know, whether or not those, you know, the bigots get to walk away, but, you know, we, we stick with the victim and we stick with the people that are, are looking to help her. The ending, it's a little bit, the whole thing, I don't know, I guess it gets a little predictable and becoming a bit of a morality tale, but there's enough here that it didn't feel undeserved. Well, I mean, the movie is called The Sin, and a lot of it is trying to parse what the real sin is here in the eyes of God. Is it the woman who has sex outside of her marriage? Is it the rape? Is it hiding the pregnancy? Is it the killing of the child? You know, because one is a result of the other, which is a result of the other. I think it earns the ending because it really is trying to figure out why bad things happen and trying to draw the line between misfortune and sin and how can something that's done through no fault of your own or because you know you're suffering that you know how how can you call that a sin and i i, I don't know i i don't think there was anything about the ending that felt undeserved there's like a, a bit of a martyrdom that happens but i i feel you i feel like a lot of the these films that we watch for this episode are sort of a defense of islamic morality in a way and that you know sort of saying we have a reputation for being unforgiving and or you know especially the uh, upper egyptians like a lot of these movies sort of are condemning the closed-mindedness of small villagers and i feel like there's this idea that a lot of these movies are trying to say that no we're we're not as closed-minded as that we're forgiving of sin we understand the plight of women and we love everybody. We believe in humanity and, and we want to forgive. It's just those small-minded villagers who, who uh, you know, are undereducated. They give us a bad, they give you know, Muslims a bad name by, you know, with, with honor killings and, and, and these sorts of things and, and being so unforgiving of any kind of sin, especially, you know, a fallen woman. We have a reputation. <laughs> this is hard to say without digging a hole for myself, but you know what I'm saying? It's like No, I it, that's interesting too because I think one of the things that I again really liked about this movie is the fact that it shows that people that are despite the fact that they maybe lack education or they're impoverished, they're still they still know inherently that you know it's like they know that this woman is deserving of help and sympathy and you know, they don't need, you know, to be the, the educated city folk. And, and actually, quite frankly, the people in the city are the, you know, in the town or the people that are the landowners are the ones who are shown in the worst light and and not these poor migrant workers. So even those people turn out to be sympathetic by the end. Yeah. When they hit over the head with it enough to, when they learn the <laughs> the full story of just how much this poor woman has had to deal with. Well, the movie starts with the the manager of this land showing up and everybody fears him and they bow and, and you think that, oh, here's this terrifying guy who who must be so cruel. And he's the one who like goes to investigate what happened where this why there's this dead baby. And you think nothing good could come of this guy finding out what really happened. And he like becomes one of the most sympathetic characters. He's one of the first to sort of accept Aziza's plight, you know, and not condemn her for, for what she did. Uh, and then he also, you know, when she needs help, he doesn't want to help her. He was won't pay for anything. He sends a barber to come and give her some 
quinine or something to solve her fever and then she goes completely psychotic <laughs> so uh you know i don't know about that i mean he's not a, a complete slave driver i guess question mark he sort of is though yeah. and i think that that's i i like that i mean i like that you know he, he has a limit to what he'll do everyone else seems to be giving her as much as they can which is nothing because they don't have anything <laughs> But they're trying, you know, at bare minimum, the thing that they can do is is keep her a secret and, you know, not give her over to the authorities, which is what the landowner would have done if it didn't look so bad for him on his land to have a dead baby. Well, the next film, The Postman from by Hussein Kamal, you know, covers some similar territory. And, and it's, it's actually very specific about what I was just saying. This man from the city uh, comes to the small village in uh, Upper Egypt to be the new postman because uh, they, they drove the last postman out of town because they didn't like him. And, he, you know, it's a government position, so they have to get somebody from the city to, to be the postman. He's got all sorts of responsibilities that they can't entrust to locals, I suppose. But uh, he comes in already with the, this idea that he's going to hate it in the small, closed-minded town and that they're, they're all backwards there. But for the first half of this movie, it, it plays out as just like a fish out of water comedy like it's sort of fun to watch abbas uh, played by shukri sarhan he was the the uh, lead character in the thief and the dogs he comes in thinking he's so much better than all of these people and you think that the arc of this film seems like he's going to learn their ways their simple ways and start to enjoy being there that's at least that's where i thought this film was going but uh it turns out that no, it goes in the opposite direction. Like things just get worse and worse. That he starts hating it more and more. He's got one friend, this station agent, who's uh, you know comes from the city, and he's uh, like the only person that Avis can talk to, the only one he can have an intelligent conversation with. But then he goes away for the month of Ramadan, and things go way downhill for him. And he you know ends up he sees a. A Romani dancer and uh, invites her back to his house. And, you know, the people in the village don't like this guy because he acts so superior and he hates the mayor because the mayor is, you know, sort of sleazy, petty guy who's just looking to profit off of any situation. And, and his cousin is the local person who works at the post office and, uh, and they're, they're sort of at odds with each other. And then they, the people in the village want to get rid of this hoity toity city guy. And so when, one of them sees that Abbas has invited the dancer back to his house. You know, he spreads the word and they all go to the house and bang on his doors with and have these torches like they're going to set his house on fire because he's consorting with a woman behind closed doors. And uh, this is sort of the last straw for Abbas, who's this sort of upstanding guy. He's, he's got no vices, but he's, you know, he just has become so miserable in this village that he starts to drink and he starts to open the letters of the people in the village so that he could get, you know, dig up some dirt on them. So because they've got this dirt on him, he wants to find out their dirty secrets so he can use it against them. But what he ends up reading is this sort of secret correspondence between this 16-year-old girl, Jamila, 
who has gone off to school in a nearby city and uh, has met this boy and they want to get married. And uh, and when she she goes back home for a month, they uh, consummate their romance because he has every intention of coming and asking for her hand. So it's going to be okay. Turns out that this one time sleeping together, she gets pregnant and her father, like, well, before he even finds out that she's pregnant, Khalil comes in with with his uncle and asks for a hand in marriage. And Jamila's father is so upset because uh, she has actually seen this boy. She violated his trust by actually like talking to a boy when she was away at school in the the city. And the very fact that he knew her previously and was asking for her hand in marriage was this enough for him to say, no, you can't marry my daughter. And what the postman is reading is this correspondence between Jamila and Camille And they had this plan to, oh, because her father wouldn't say yes to his proposal and because she's pregnant, she's going to run off to Cairo uh, to elope with him. But he accidentally wrecks one of the letters. And so an important piece of communication between the two of them doesn't happen. Here's the problem with this movie, Bart, is that, God, I wish that it had been about him opening these letters like an hour and 20 minutes sooner than he actually opens those damn letters because boy was this movie totally boring me up until then i kind of i mean okay i don't dislike this movie and in fact the ending is so good that i bumped it up you know a half star in letterboxd <laughs> uh the ending is amazing but the first hour and a half of this movie is just this guy coming to a town where everyone hates him and him becoming more and more miserable. And I, okay, as a haughty city person, I actually kind of appreciated that. Like, I'm so happy that this wasn't about a guy learning to love the simple ways, but (laughs) it was also like the pacing of this is really rough. And it kind of just feels like, why are we here? Why are we here until finally he like, you know, gets told like, oh, if you're bored, you know, he's like, all these people are animals and they don't do anything. They don't have any thoughts in their head. And his friend says, well, they do because you're delivering the mail. So just open the mail (laughs) and read it. And uh, finally, we get some juicy stuff, you know, that we have already been seeing, uh, you know, and the movie shows you this little budding romance and it's totally the most G-rated of G-rated kind of stuff uh, until we learn it isn't. And then it gets intriguing, but I don't, did you, how did you feel about this movie? It held my attention. I was never bored. I, th- I thought it was going to be this fish out of water thing and, and was sort of enjoying it on that level. So, I, and when it sort of became a very different kind of movie, I enjoyed that it was willing to change directions so completely, but I thought that some of the plotting was a little careless, like I think you're right. It wasn't set up very well. I think it was so caught up in getting us to think that the movie was this one thing that when it becomes another thing, it doesn't do it all that successfully. It's a great ending and uh, it's absolutely not at all where you think this movie is going to go based on the first half of it. And I appreciate that, but I didn't think it quite worked. Of all the movies we watched, this is the one where I thought, this is a good movie, but it doesn't quite come together as well as the rest of them. Well, it's just so it's so relentlessly miserable. I mean, like it really it, it's clear that the that the movie just hates these people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, you know, okay, fine. Um, but it it's just sort of, you know, it's rough. Like you really don't get any humanization for uh these characters except for the postman. 
Um, everyone's a bit of a caricature. The thing I really loved about the ending without spoiling it is that it kind of reminds me of like a really fucked up version of The Graduate. You know, like it has the, it's a very similar beat. Hmm. I think I know what you're saying, but I never would have described it that way. But that's it. Cause you, you're seeing like what's happening in someone's eyes. And as you know, the movie moves forward, the look in the eyes change. And that's, that to me was just like brilliant. Absolutely mm. brilliant. Really like it totally like blew me away. Like I was not expecting any of it. And I wasn't expecting to, to feel that way. Cause I really was, was kind of struggling. <laughs> I didn't hate this movie. It was great. I mean, like, you know, Shukri uh, Sarhan is great. I really, he, he actually, I, I could see so much more in this movie why he's considered one of the best actors of Egypt ever <laughs> than uh, I did in Chased by Dogs. Well, he's got some kind of a Marcello Mastroianni thing going on in this movie, <laughs> which he <Yes>. doesn't. <laughs> no, Nino Manfredi. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's the mustache, really. Because he, he, he doesn't the... look like either of them in the, in the earlier film. But it's the hangdogness. It's like the the world weariness uh, while still being kind of a loser. Like, I love that he has this, like, porn addiction. (laughs) (laughs) There Um, are some really funny moments in this movie. And I think that's what got me through the first half. Um, Yes. I think you did hit on it, though. It's after coming off the sin where even the antagonistic characters are still, like, you sort of get where they're coming from. And, you know, all of the sort of closed-minded villagers become more open-minded by the end of the sin. But in this movie, it you're right. It, it just hates these upper Egyptian villagers so much, like right from the get-go. And it never, you never gain any sympathy for any of them, except for Jamila, the, the daughter yeah. who's gone off to the school. But, you know, otherwise it just hates all, all of these characters. And uh, I think that might be why this movie doesn't quite work as well as it should there was one good bit where like you know as he sits in the post office people come to the window and there's this one guy who comes and keeps trying to put money in because you know everyone oh that's that's so and so and oh he's saving up to buy guns so he can kill (laughs) you know get a revenge killing in and so it's like he's talking to the local policeman who says oh it's a vicious cycle of ignorance he's like i was just like you but i've been here for six years and i forced myself to be content you can't wallow in anger forever you know and like walks away and so you know i kind of i enjoyed that beat you know it's like that this they sort of show this one character is just completely like dead set on revenge and that's all he is and then being sort of you know to have a character like this policeman who who comes in and sort of looks at it and shrugs and says like, what are you going to do about it? You know? And like, that is the only way that you can kind of ignore all of this stuff and, and this ignorance and this, you know, these people that are just, just totally full of just, you know, selfish hatred and stuff like that. But it does, it just seems caricaturesque, you know, it's just not, it, it's fine. It was okay. But I mean, I th- actually think there's some really good subtle or not so subtle satirical comedy in this. Yeah. The likes of which we don't really see in any of these other movies, like all of them, no matter how tragic any of these movies are, it always has, you know, there are comic beats, like things that are, are funny, but this movie really convinces you that it's the satire of small village life until it's not. And I think that it functions. The part of this movie that you didn't like, I actually liked because it was functioning so well as 
a great comic satire. Well, look, now that I know the ending and I know that this is basically Mike Nichols' Egyptian film, I might (laughs) like it again if I rewatch it. So Maybe. This is the one I wouldn't rewatch of all of these, though. Me neither, but (laughs) (laughs) if I ever do. Well, uh, the last movie... I can't believe we got through seven of these. Um, The last movie was the best movie by far, which is, and also the the most seen on Letterboxd. (laughs) I watched this movie and said, this is such a Jenna movie. Oh my God. I I adored this. This was the night of counting the years from 1969. Directed by Shadi Abdel Salam, who was a production designer on Saladin and on uh, Cleopatra, the uh, Elizabeth Taylor one. So when are we going to get around to that one? I don't know. <laughs> Never. <laughs> so I think this is one of the better known movies in the West uh, that opened with the fact that it was Scorsese, uh, you know, helped clean it up restore it along with like Cartier and like a handful of other uh big names but and um, uh, R- Roberto Rossellini produced yes. it too so it had some European money in there and very interesting to go to jump to 1969 and I think the fact that this was a designer who directed this I think is huge and it comes through completely it actually made me think of phase four a little bit uh Saul Bass's uh film because it, it just the the visuals completely different movie but the visuals I can see it you can see that the, the design really matters here it's in color and the camera moves mm-hmm. <laughs> so just just a real real uh visual whiplash uh, in comparison but the plot, the plot of this one, uh, this is a movie that is meant to be set before British rule in the late 1880s. And it is about, again, Upper Egypt and a herding tribe that is located. They're the Abd el Rasuls, and they live in the mountains and they live among ancient Egyptian ruins. And the story follows right after the leader of this tribe has has passed away and his two sons have then inherited his position uh in title and they are finally let in on uh, this big secret of how this tribe has actually survived for the generations and generations which is that they're harvesting valuables from ancient egyptian tombs in order to survive so they're they're tomb raiding and they'll do things like basically open up a sarcophagus and cut the head off of a mummified pharaoh in order to steal their you know gold neck solid gold necklace and then sell that to a shady merchant in town so that they you know get enough money where they can then support themselves for the entire year and and continue their way of life so this is like crucial to the only way that they can possibly survive because otherwise they live in just such a barren wasteland the two brothers are completely shocked by this revelation and uh, are horrified, especially when they, they, you know, see how this is done, which, which is like, you know, defiling the dead. 
and they decide to take a stand against it to the great anger of their uncles who have already you know shown them how to access this hidden treasure which is a huge deal and not everyone knows this and you know the fact that they know this is kind of already a life or death situation so the movie kind of follows the younger brother uh who's named Juanis, played by Ahmed Murray as he uh wrestles with what to do with his life because he's sort of being courted by the, his tribe to lead and continue he's being courted by merchants to continue because they're making bank off of all the things that they're probably buying for pennies to just support this tribe then there's city folk who are coming in and you know trying to figure out where these merchants are getting these items from and he's also being courted by this desire to do what's right and that seems to kind of border on basically nihilism because it flies in the face of just literally everything that he's ever known and this movie it was just like i was just mesmerized by this movie it's just really gorgeous composition gorgeously shot the stunning locations i mean it's just insane you know i don't even know i'm sure half of this is production design but like it's just so beautiful i it really feels out of time it feels like a movie that could have been made you know yesterday and i wouldn't have ever thought twice you know so the fact that this is even in 69 it really genuinely feels like it's like the 1800s <laughs> it feels so different than all the other movies we watch too and it, you know because this is an art film and the rest are you know popular cinema it's a slow moving film but it's got so much atmosphere like this the soundtrack like there's always some kind of hum some 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 kind of mysterious noise on the soundtrack just sort of to keep you on edge it's shot like a ghost story in a lot of ways like there are no literal ghosts but a lot of the storyline has to do with how Juanus is uh you know haunted by his ancient ancestors and that he wants to do right by them he doesn't want to you know violate their peaceful rests and and he doesn't want to profit off of violating these tombs but at the same time he knows that his tribe will won't be able to survive without this income so sort of appropriate that it's got this ghost story feel to it i think this this movie goes even deeper like i think this is a movie and this is what was really blowing me away besides the fact that it's gorgeous and it's atmospheric you know the there's this starkness to all of the acting and yet the characters their emotions come through so strongly. But the the thing is that the heart of this film is this like, it's a, you know, it's a movie about a man who's awoken to the fact that there's no morality in this world and that we all live on top of each other and we consume each other. And he's just destroyed by this realization. And, you know, it's like to live is to be a part of history. But like when your timeline of your life gets so blurred with like the lives of the previous and, and not even just his family, but like his family's family's family, family's, you know, entire, you know, Pharaohs down to just like decades upon centuries of history. Like suddenly the burden of living in history just becomes so overwhelming. And it, this whole movie, it's like, I'm trying to like put this into words because it's kind of pretty much like, like how can we both mourn and love our ancestors while we actively consume them and destroy everything that they built in order to live? 
I mean, I think about history all the damn time. <laughs> Here we are doing a podcast about 1960s, which I was never even a part of. But like this concept, it always haunts me is this idea of like the way that we knock down buildings to build new ones. I mean, like there's there's just there's no correct answer for this stuff because it isn't moral. And I, and I feel like Juan is almost like he, he like rediscovers the entire reason for why we created religion. <laughs> it's like, it's just to give ourselves a sense of how to move forward from grief and live with purpose, you know, in the face of just like such just towering grief, immorality. I mean, like it, it's just, it's a cycle. It's, it's like the sun. It's like, it's too powerful and overwhelming if we really look at it directly. Yeah, there is something really spiritual about this movie, but it's hard to put your finger on what that kind of spiritualism is. It's just sort of a connection to the past. And there is an existentialism to it. It's sort of, what is it all about? We, you know, we live, we die. And, you know, who's going to remember me or or the people in my tribe? We don't matter very much in the big picture, but these, you know, my ancient ancestors here, there's a record of their lives and and we can learn from them. and you know, so it, it sort of, in a way, it sort of reminded me of that Gil Scott Heron song, uh, Whitey on the Moon, where <laughs> it's like, there are these two, like, you know, people living this hand to mouth existence who, you know, is the most important thing that they survive. Sure. If you, you know, if you're there in that environment with people struggling to, you know, make ends meet, you, you think, yeah, what could possibly be more important than that. But then at the same time, you, you know, you take a look at the big picture of human progress and, you know, just what, what is it all about? And, and you can't help but think, but yeah, what kind of sacrifices am I willing to make to progress, to be remembered, to move on, to have humanity become something more, something better for a movie that's seemingly so simple. Like there's not a whole lot of dialogue. It's a, a lot of people like staring at each other for a long time and, you know, staring off pensively into the, you know, at, at the horizon or, or at these 4,000 year old sculptures and, you know, not, I need to see it again to figure out how it really accomplishes, you know, how it manages to address all of these, you know, sort of huge ideas without seemingly doing all that much. Yeah, I, it really gets across so much and, and with just like glances. And I think that part of that is, you know, by framing something like a glance with this bookends of just long kind of plotting setup, you know, just like these wide shots to then to cut basically to cut to a close up from a long stretch of, of being in wide in itself is a drama. And it's something, I mean, it, the direction here is just astounding. I mean, everything that all of the filmmaking in this is astounding. It's just really like beautifully done. There's not a single, there's not like an ounce of fat on this movie. Mm -hmm. There's not a single thing that, that is not directly leading you towards the overall and the overarching drama. And again, like the fact that, I mean, there's a scene where pretty much, you know, the city folks who were coming in to try and take these mummies away. And I was just holding my breath the entire mm -hmm. time. I mean, it was just like, I, it like, you know, really like my heart was pounding. Like it was just so intense. And I think that that's like, when you've already set up this baseline of this calmness, anything that any ripple in the water 
and it can be the from the uh, you know the, the smallest pebble to the largest rock you know it's like any little ripple anything that's happening on screen it just really affects you and i think it's all about just setting that that stage to begin with uh, and then plus i mean for me too it's just this is like a history lover's dream film <laughs> yeah it was nice to actually finally get invested in ancient egypt in one of these films like other films will touch on you know the lovers will meet at these ancient ruins or something or or there'll be a shootout on the top of some ruins or something in another film so there you know this this ancient history is is there in in some of these other films the bust of nefertiti and as a as a potential lover for uh hussein <laughs> in that movie um so it's always you know you don't forget that this is a this is a country with uh, you know thousands and thousands of years of history but this is the first movie that actually gets us inside the tombs and every you know every kid loves ancient egypt and is obsessed with this idea of mummies and tombs and here i am in egypt and watching these egyptian films i, I you know show me show me some mummies and i loved <laughs> and i loved that Jeez, we finally Mark. got <laughs> But I, I also uh, when we watch Greek movies, I'm going to bring this up. Yeah, no, it's 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 true. Show me some gods. No, I don't know. I, I my well, my thing is just that like I definitely know more about ancient Egypt than I know about modern Egypt, so that's on me. But um, you know, the thing too that I is just that we know damn well that the museums that take all of these things, you know, and this is part of just again like what makes the the conflict at the heart of this just so rich is that there's no right answer, you know, and, and like are museums any better than looters, which is something that has been coming up more and more, you know, as a, as a wider conversation more recently as, as certain countries are even straight up asking for things back and demanding things back from, especially from the British. It's also the plot of a major MCU movie. Black <laughs> Panther. Oh, okay. <laughs> True. But, you know, and then the, just the fact that like not be, even beyond that, I mean, museums will will sell to the highest bidder as needed in order to fund their institution, which then steals to line more pockets, you know. And so that's just kind of I, I mean, but at the same time, the people that work within this institution on any lower level are the ones who genuinely are trying to do good and feel that, you know, this is their purpose. And so like to even think about just how morally murky museums are as institutions. And then you have, you know, Wannis, and where does he even go from here? The fact that, like, he really is such a tragic character, but he's almost like, this is, the ending of this was like the ending of 2001. Mm -hmm. There are obelisks in this movie that definitely reminded me of 2001, the, the gravestones. Yeah. I mean, he's dead. The second that he walks away, and not even, I don't mean that he's literally, you know, any, but though he could be, <laughs> But, his, you know, who he is as a human being and who he is on this planet and, and who he will be remembered by, he is just a non-entity at a certain point. At the point in which he tells his uncles in the first 10 minutes, this is disgusting and we can't continue it. I mean, who is he anymore? He he no longer exists. And so he's this man who like, and to sort of watch him grapple with that and try and keep trying to, you know, find some some sense of anything and be unable to even when he's trying to make decisions that are are you know the right quote unquote the right decisions i mean he's condemned himself to be the dead you know and it and it's just it's just i don't this movie like blew my mind <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah it it is it's fantastic and it deserves to be 
talked about, you know, alongside the major works of like Andre Tarkovsky, which is what I was thinking, you know, like Solaris yeah. or Stalker. It, it sort of has a similar feel to those movies, like in its pacing and it's slightly ponderous, but but also, you know, there's so much there. There's so much so much meat to sink your teeth into and just so, you know, beautiful and otherworldly. For an episode where I, I pretty much liked every single movie and not even just liked, I really liked all of these movies. And this was, this one was just like freaking gold medal. <laughs> Love this. This was like, this goes beyond for me. This did it for me. For this to be the most internationally known Egyptian film and to still have very few people know about it is, is a little shocking and just shows you how little awareness of Egyptian cinema there is in the West. And it's a crime because, again, amazing, amazing movie. Though I will say it might be the kind of weird uh, English title. <laughs> Apparently the Egyptian title for this is The Mummy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can never remember what the English title, the, the Night of Counting the Years. What is the Night of, I mean, I guess I get it. I get it. Ah, and to bookend this with the, that ancient, like, oh, man, the ancient text. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. Anyhow, Egypt, what a country. This all started because you sent me a photograph of some some mural somewhere that was celebrating the golden age of, of Egyptian cinema. I was in the poster museum in Manhattan, which used to be TechServe, if anyone's from New York City and you know TechServe, which I used to work at, which was a Macintosh computer repair store. Mm -hmm. It was pretty much the Apple store before the Apple store existed. This So this poster museum opened up where TechServe used to be, and I had been meaning to check it out because of my connection to TechServe. And they had a whole exhibit on Russian film posters of the 20s and 30s, so that's like 100% my jam. And then they had this whole just giant, giant poster from the 60s of about Egyptian, you know, golden age of film. And I was like, the who and the what? <laughs> <laughs> so I sent it to you, and you were like, huh? <laughs> it's true. Like, I... I was aware that there were great Egyptian films that I needed to see from the 60s, but I didn't know really anything about this golden age and hadn't even necessarily heard of it referred to as such before. Had no idea that it was such a huge industry at this time and that, uh, you know, the entire Arabic world was just watching Egyptian films. It was great to just find out how good these movies are and how easy they are to watch. And there's... No reason to be afraid of them. No reason to, for anyone to think, oh, maybe that might be a little too challenging. I don't understand what's going on in that part of the world enough to appreciate these films. But none of these are require really any kind of context at all. They're just great films. I 100% agree. Like these are all insanely watchable, and the fact that you're not watching them is really it's probably because you don't know where to get. <laughs> <laughs> but you should totally watch them and we will link to anything that is available on streaming on cinema60.com and that's it that was our season what a great way to end it yeah it was perfect yeah if we've done any major good in the world with this podcast hopefully it's that we've helped uh, some people discover Egyptian cinema because who knew I know who knew except for the entire Arab world there were a lot of really great episodes in Cinema 60 this season. 
I don't know about you. I think this is definitely one of my favorite. I think our British spy films episode, which was one of the, I think the second one. The only good James Bond episode we ever did. <laughs> was really outstanding. I really liked watching all those Stan Brackage movies. I mean, I always enjoy every episode we do. <laughs> you don't, but I do. Well. Yeah, uh-huh. Go yeah. ahead. Tell me you're never going to do another Bond episode again. No, I, I don't need to say that again. Sometimes the Hollywood trash can get to me a little bit. You know what? When you're leaving your reviews for us, be sure to mention how much you love the Bond episodes because we've already gotten feedback straight up that was like, I love whenever you guys do a Bond episode. And then another one that was like, I love everything but the Bond episodes. <laughs> so Bart and I are tallying this because he desperately wants out and I want to I want to do every single one. There's got to be an Egyptian Bond. There might be. We're going to find him. So thank you again. And please leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, follow us on Twitter at Cinema 60 Podcast, follow us on Facebook, same thing. And thank you for listening. Bart? I don't... Say thank <laughs> you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. We're done. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.